that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Let's thank Laura for a wonderful job reading scripture this morning. We have first graders reading our scripture. Oh, you may be seated. <laughs> I'm not used to doing that. You may be seated. We have first graders reading scripture for us in every single one of our worship services this morning. Last week, our first graders received their very own Bibles, and so we thought it was a great way to commemorate that and include them in the life of the church today. Uh, Laura, thank you so much. What a great job reading your scripture. Hello, good morning. My name is Scott Gilliland. I am one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane, and along with my wife, Reagan, who is absent this morning, I'll explain that in just a second, uh, we are uh, the co-pastors here at this worship community that we call Thrive, and it is a joy to be with you again this, this morning. I've been out for a couple of weeks. We had a little thing happen in our family. Uh, we had a baby, uh, and that's awesome, and a sweet baby Jude. I think we've got a picture. Uh, oh, my gosh. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you can clap. He's adorable. You can clap. That's all good. Clap for Reagan. She, she did all the work, man. Um, he is doing great. Thank you so much for all of your prayers and your support and your love. We are definitely feeling it uh, as a family during this season. Judah's doing great. He's a good sleeper. He's too good of a sleeper. Uh, it, we, he's not quite back at his birth weight yet, which the doctors want him to be back at by his two-week uh, uh, birthday, I guess, by the time he's two weeks old. He hadn't quite hit that yet. And they said, well, how's he sleeping? And they're like, he's sleeping really good. He's in like four and a half hours, stretches at night. They're like, you got to wake him up and feed him. We're like, what? Like, yeah, he's got to gain more weight. I'm like, stop body shaming my child, right? Um, he likes to sleep, and I like to sleep too. But we are, we are, just so everyone's clear, we're, we're waking him up and feeding him. I don't want to get any emails like, how could you not care for no, we, we No, we do. Okay. So he's growing, he's getting bigger and healthier, yay. So uh, Reagan's doing great, recovery's going awesome, thank you, thank you, thank you. Greetings to those who are joining us online, glad you're with us as we continue in this sermon series called I Wonder. We're asking some questions that we know are uh, difficult questions, questions that um, I think all of us have, not just from time to time, but sometimes all the time. And today we're going to ask a really big one help us get there, we're going to talk about the scripture, a little bit more of it than what Laura just read for us. It comes to us from Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. And Paul says this to the church in Rome. He says that we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of God for the people of God, let us say, thanks be to God. Let's say a word of prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for the words that we've just heard from your servant, Paul. God, we give you thanks for this gift of worship. As Didi reminded us earlier in the service, a moment to hit pause on what has happened and, and what is going to happen and instead try to find you in this present. And maybe we walk in uh, after the best week of our lives or the hardest week of our lives or something in between. Maybe we walk in with a question like the one that we're wrestling with today. Why do bad things happen to good people? God, we just ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our spirits to receive your word for us today. That it might change the way that we live. 
In the name of your son, Jesus the Christ, in his resurrected name we pray and we say, amen. So part of our vision statement here at Lover's Lane United Methodist Church, you can go read it after you leave church today. It's out in the big hall over here, printed really big on the wall. Uh, And part of that vision statement is we want to be a faith community that we say passionately engages the Bible passionately engages the Bible. And, and one way we interpret that for ourselves is, is we like to take a deeper look at Scripture to understand not only what it sounds like it means for us today, but also to understand what it meant uh, for the times and the places and the people who were uh, involved in its creation thousands of years ago. We try to read Scripture, as we say, in its context. Now, normally, we would look at the circumstances surrounding Paul's writing of this letter to the, to the church in Rome. We Could tell you about the cultural influences in Rome at the time, the events surrounding Paul's ministry, the looming gathering he had in Jerusalem that was likely on his mind when he was writing these words. But today I don't want to talk specifically about those circumstances uh, in Paul's writing these words to the church or churches in Rome. Instead, I want us to zoom out in a big way and consider instead the larger theological stream that Paul has built his foundation on as a Jesus follower who greatly loves and defends his Jewish faith. You heard that right. So a lot of times we make the mistake of believing that that people who start religious movements uh, consider themselves to be converted to this new religion. That's not true. Our own uh, founder, John Wesley, died himself believing it to be an Anglican. If you'd asked him, are you a Methodist? He said, well, are are you a member of the United Methodist Church? That didn't exist. He didn't know what that meant. He was starting a Methodist movement within the Anglican Church. Paul was a Jewish man. He was a a Pharisee at one point in his life, but he never felt himself converted away from Judaism. He just felt himself called closer to Jesus and to follow uh, the teachings of Jesus and saw himself as a reformer within the Jewish faith. And so as a scholar of the Hebrew Bible, as someone who had been raised and taught, instructed, and who had taught it himself, Paul would have been steeped in the prevailing theology of the Old Testament that could be summarized as, in the words of my Old Testament professor at Perkins School of Theology said when I took that class, Dr. Roy Heller, he said, that here's, here's sort of the broad brushstrokes of Old Testament theology. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. Right? That's the prevailing theology, broad brushstrokes. Think about God's covenant with Abraham. I'll bless those who bless you. The downward spiral of the book of Judges, the multiple exiles of the Israelites. We could point to story after story or prophet after prophet in the Old Testament who share a similar understanding of how our faithfulness, or lack thereof, has a cause and effect relationship with whatever rewards or punishments God has for us in this life. Now, that's not to say, before I get an email, that's not to say that the Old Testament is of one mind on this, right? Scripture is a library. The Bible's a library with a whole lot of voices, and and we could point to any number of examples where where the Old Testament disagrees with itself. One of my favorite books in the Old Testament is the book of Ecclesiastes, which is basically a big old objection to this way of thinking of the you do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad. Throughout the Old Testament, we could point to examples of mercy visiting the unworthy and hardship pressing in on the righteous. But it's easy to read the Hebrew Bible and to develop a theology not unlike the one that Paul would have promoted as a Pharisee in the time of Jesus. Before he met the Spirit of Christ and began to preach the path of Jesus. And Paul, though, guys, Paul of all people would have reason to doubt this you do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad way of thinking. Paul 
had every reason to doubt that. I mean, he was a very faithful man as he led the early church, but he would be shipwrecked and he would be imprisoned and tortured and eventually martyred for his faith. And so with all of this in mind, knowing Paul's background, knowing the theology that he's drawing from as a man of great Jewish faith, and also knowing that he lives in the real world, and and also knowing what we believe today, how do we understand his words when he says, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, when we also have the question of why do bad things happen to good people? How do we reconcile that? How do we understand what Paul's getting at? So to answer this question, I don't know if you're like me, when I have a really good question on my mind or on my heart, it frequently leads me to other questions, right? I start to go down that rabbit trail of that really good question, right? And then all of a sudden I got other questions that spring out. Anybody else like that? Like like that with me? I, I get a couple questions that come out of this question for me that I think we have to answer first before we can get to what Paul is actually talking about. Now I see Paul saying all things, God All things work together for good for those who love God. All things. And it gives me this initial question that I think we got to answer. Does God control or cause all things? Does God really control or cause all things? That's a really big question. By the way, we're going to be drinking from a fire hose today. So we're just going to be, if you feel like I should stop and talk about any given thing for more than about two minutes, I'm sorry. Uh, We just have to get through a lot because it's a really big question. deserves a really big answer in 25 minutes. So, you know, we're trying. Um, Does God really control and cause all things? This is really a question theologically that we would call a question of sovereignty. How do we understand God's sovereignty? To be sovereign means to be in control, right? And and as an Orthodox Christian, um, we believe, uh, you you would believe if you're an Orthodox Christian, that God is both omnipotent and sovereign, meaning God is all-powerful and also in control. Now, you can believe both of those things, as do I, and also not necessarily believe that God expresses that control over every single thing in our lives and in our world. Let me explain why. So, going back to... uh, This guy named John Wesley. I talk about him a lot in here because he was the guy that started the Methodist movement in the Anglican church, and that's why we have a Methodist church today. John Wesley, we've got a picture of him up on the screen, I think, uh, with his buddy, George Whitfield. Those were two lookers, right? Um, You can see why they were such famous preachers, right? (laughs) This is before TV evangelism. They had (laughs) faces for radio. Um, So John Wesley and George Whitfield were uh, both really good friends in addition to being really good preachers. And we we tend to think of historical figures in isolation, and we forget that they lived real lives, right? And they they have relationships just like we do, that they have friends just like we do. And John and and George were really good friends. They both shared a, a huge passion for presenting the gospel in a radically new way. See, when they came into their adult ministry lives, the way you did church was you went into an old, cold stone building, and you looked at a bunch of bored people, and you talked to them in really highfalutin language about things they didn't really understand, and that was church. And you didn't get outside that old, cold stone building, and so if you couldn't make it into the old, cold stone building, then I'm sorry, you're just not going to hear about Jesus, right? And they said, well, what if, now, hold on, what if? We preached outside, right? And they were like, that's heretical. You can't do that, right? You can't preach outside. Well, they did. They would go. It was this crazy new evangelism strategy called preaching outside, 
right? Um, <laughs> I know. And so they would go out in the fields. They would stand outside uh, as miners were going to their morning shift early in the morning. And they would just preach the gospel. And they would try to preach it in a way that every person could understand, no matter their level of education or whatever, right? This was a radical notion. It's what made them such good friends because they both believed so fervently that the gospel had to reach people in a new way. And it's why they were both so effective and why they gave such revival to their, their areas where they lived in England. In addition to being good friends, though, they, they also um, they had their trials. And a big division for them was, was a theological one. So George Whitfield was a Calvinist. Uh, we call a Calvinist theologically. And, and today you can understand that you can be a friend with a Calvinist and still be a Methodist, right? So your friends that are Baptists or your friends that are Presbyterian, you can still be friends with them. It's okay. Because uh, John Wesley had Calvinist friends too. A Calvinist, though, in terms of sovereignty, God's sovereignty, um, they believed, as George Whitfield believed, that God was kind of like an authoritarian king. That God expresses that control absolutely. And when, when Paul is talking about those whom God predestines and those whom God elects and those whom God calls, a Calvinist would say God is the one who decides who is going to love God and who's not going to love God because God is sovereign. And for them that means God is in full control and is the cause of these kinds of things. Wesley was not a Calvinist. He's an Armenian theologian. If you're a Methodist, you're an Armenian too. You didn't know that, but now you know, maybe. Um, an Armenian theologian says, um, God is sovereign, God has control, but it's a different kind of control. God expresses that control differently, not like an authoritarian king, but more like a loving parent, right? Like if I were to ask the parents in the room, you know, you're in control of your house, right? They, at first they would laugh at me, um, but, but you know, there's a sense that like I, I am in charge, right? But I have these children, these people, and maybe animals too that have minds of their own and have hearts of their own, and you know, gosh darn it, sometimes they just don't listen to me, right? And, and I am not necessarily the one that causes everything to happen in my home. I'm sure a lot of parents' homes would be a lot quieter if that were the case, right? So when Jude is fussing and I can't figure out what's going on, I can't make him stop crying because he's got a mind and a life of his own. That's how Wesley understood the control of God as well, kind of like a loving parent, someone who is there, someone who is quote-unquote in control, but doesn't express that control absolutely, doesn't try to control and define every aspect of life. And he believed that because he wanted so desperately to believe that God's grace was universally available to all people. That God doesn't pick and choose who loves God and who doesn't. That we all have access to this grace and ultimately it's a choice. A choice that God's grace allows us to make, but it's a choice that, that, that we make. So Wesley and Whitfield, George and John, they, they have this, this clash as a friendship, uh, within their friendship. And it's all around this issue of sovereignty. Now, I know that it can be easy to want to believe that God is in control and expresses that control completely. I think sometimes it's, it's easy to want to jump to that. It's comforting to want to jump to that kind of theology or that way of believing. Maybe to, to know that there's purpose within the chaos. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a chaotic situation, when I feel like my life is in a chaotic situation, I just want some semblance of control or steadiness. And maybe that makes me want to believe that, you know what, maybe God's behind this. Because that just gives me some comfort to know at least something is in control here. But I don't know if it's as comforting as we might wish it would be. So a lot of us in the room know that, uh, and Reagan and I have talked about this, um, 
a lot that before Andy was born, before she was conceived, we went through about two years of infertility, really hard time. Uh, and we talk about that because we know that there are folks going through that right now in this room. And the church historically does a really bad job of talking about this. And, and even as a culture, we don't talk about it a bunch. And we think that we're alone in this and we're not. So um, it was a really hard part of our story, and it's a part of our story. Um, and when we were going through infertility, there were a lot of people who I think meant really well when they would say things that I believe were really well-intentioned uh, that just were not helpful. Things like, um, if you just wait, I just know God's going to come through for you. If you just wait, if you just have faith, I just, I just know God's going to bless you with a child. Or, you know what, you're just going to be so much more grateful when God finally blesses you with a child. And, and like I said, I know that when people say those kinds of things, they have every good intention in the world. Maybe those words are comforting for them. Maybe it helps to alleviate the awkwardness in the conversation. I don't know. But here's where it's not helpful for me. Because the reality is, we don't know how our story was going to end. And even more than that, I have got friends who are way more faithful than me, who are way more righteous than me. I drink whiskey and smoke cigars. Don't tell the bishop. I think he might too. <laughs> way more faithful, way more righteous, and they will never have that be the end of the story. They will never have a biological child of their own. And so what am I supposed to make of that, or what am I supposed to tell them? They're not faithful enough. God's punishing them because God's in control, right? The problem with believing that God is the cause of everything, including our suffering, believing that God is the cause of our suffering on the way to something better, is that when something better doesn't come, it can mean the undoing of our faith. I have known way too many people who cling to this understanding that God is in control of absolutely everything, but when that something better doesn't come, it shakes their face to the core. And here's the deal, church, friends. It is not enough to have a faith that only works when things work out. I'm going to say that again. It is not enough to only have a faith that works when things work out. I don't know about you, but there's a lot that hadn't worked out in my life. I don't believe that God gave us the trials of infertility so that one day we could be more grateful for the gift of Andy or Jude. I do believe, however, hear this, this is some good news, that God revealed a lot to us in the midst of our suffering. I believe God cried with us. I believe God shed the very first tear. I believe that God comforted us. And I believe that God ultimately lifted us to a place where we were not defining our story based upon our ability to have biological children. The best thing we can get from God sometimes is an identity of knowing that we are first and foremost God's. I don't think that God brought us to that suffering place, but I do know we found God in it. And we were able to find purpose even in the midst of what seemed senseless and empty. I'm going to put it this way. God does not cause evil to serve a larger purpose. God redeems evil and helps us resurrect purpose. Say that one more time because I think it's going to help somebody this morning. God does not cause evil to serve a larger purpose. God redeems evil and helps us resurrect purpose. Okay, so if you ask me, Scott, does God control and cause everything? And my answer is no. I don't believe God causes suffering and evil and pain in our lives. Then if it's not God, here's the next question, right? There's the next logical question. And if it's not God, then why do bad things happen? If you're saying it's not God, then why do bad things happen? And this is where it gets a little bit messier. 
And this is where I'm going to, you know, what I'm about to give you is not an official Methodist understanding of evil or, or pain or suffering. This is not an official John Wesley understanding. This is Pastor Scott and how he understands why bad things happen. And, and I like to be kind of an organized thinker, even though I know it's hard to tell that sometimes. Um, I like to try to organize my thoughts, especially with something as chaotic as why do bad things happen, especially to good people. And so I think of, of evil, as we're going to talk about evil, the bad things, evil. I'm going to talk about evil in four basic categories. That's how I understand evil in my world and why it happens. Number one, I believe that evil happens because of evil actions. Evil actions. This is uh, interpersonal evil, right? When I do something mean to you or you do something mean to me, when I am evil to you or you are evil to me, when, when we can lay those, that evil, that bad thing at the, feet, at the foot of one person, sometimes I just do bad things. Sometimes I am just evil to somebody else in a way that's really big or a way that's really small. And so you might say, Scott, why did my friend get struck by a drunk driver? And I would say, because a drunk driver got behind the wheel of a vehicle. There's an evil action. That's, I wish I had a better answer for you, but that's what I understand. Evil actions. Number two, there is what I would call systemic evil. Now, this is evil that's it's still evil actions, but it's not something we can lay at the feet of one individual. This is a collective of people, sometimes a group of people. Sometimes it's the whole daggum world. Think about the isms. Racism. Sexism. Homophobia. Right? Economic oppression. Systems that we have in place that all of us participate in. You can deny it, but it's true. All of us participate in, whether we are aware of it or not. And it's systems that, that do evil things to people, but we can't point to one individual as to who's at fault because it's kind of all of us, right? And we might love to, when someone does something racist, put, write a news story about them and say, hey, let's all point fingers and be mad at the racist when the reality is all of us participate in systemic racism. I'm not going to go down that path today because I don't have enough time. But these are, the, these are the evils that we all participate in as a collective people of the world. Systemic evil. Number three, third way of understanding evil, natural evil. Scott, why did Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans? If you ever hear a preacher say that God sends hurricanes to punish cities because of their sin, don't even yell back at them because that's just fuel for their fire. Just get up and walk out and certainly don't give them any money. Right? That's the worst theology in the world. You know why Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans? Because there's weather patterns, and the hurricane hit New Orleans. We live in a world that is alive, and sometimes it's alive in a violent way. And sometimes hurricanes and tornadoes and things like volcanoes, they happen. And, and why do they happen? Because we live in a world that's alive sometimes in a violent way. It's not perfect. It's not the Garden of Eden. It's broken. Something went wrong. Theologically, we talk about original sin. We allowed this evil to have a foothold in this world, but something is wrong with the world. It's alive and sometimes in a violent and broken way. Scott, why does my friend have cancer? Why did my mom die of cancer? Because the human body is alive and sometimes in a violent and broken way. Cells mutate and they mutate in a way that's not healthy for the body. It's not easy answers, but it's the answers I've got. Fourth way of understanding evil. So we've got evil actions, systemic evil, natural evil. Lastly, cosmic evil. This is where I'm going to lose some of you because you're not ready for supernatural talk in church. You'll get there one day. It's okay. Now, if you're a baptized Methodist or if you've ever professed faith uh, in a Methodist church, then uh, you believe in cosmic evil, whether you think you do or not, because you agreed to, uh, you, you agreed to, uh, how do we say, uh, uh, um, blanking on the word, uh, 
resist. God, I need to sleep more. Oh, coffee. Jude, this is for you. You agreed to resist the spiritual forces of wickedness and evil. See, it works. Um, when you joined a Methodist church, you professed faith in a Methodist church, you agreed to resist the spiritual forces of wickedness and evil. When we talk about cosmic evil, we're talking about sometimes you might want to call him the devil or Satan or the enemy. Or maybe you're a really good Methodist and spiritual forces of wickedness and evil is good for you, right? Uh, but we, what we say is that there is something beyond what we can see, touch, taste, smell, right? Something beyond the tactile, tangible world that is at work trying to undo God's creation, trying to create brokenness and evil and death in the world. Now, I don't know about you, but I've sensed this at work in my own life. There was a time in my life where I was like, that whole supernatural stuff. Listen, there have been times in my life where I have felt under attack or I felt like my family was under attack and I couldn't put my finger on a person or a system or a natural event. It just felt like something was working to undo the goodness in our life. And that's what I call cosmic evil, right? It's the stuff that we can't quite put our finger on, but we know it's at work. And we, we promise to resist as followers of Jesus. So... Four different ways of understanding evil. None of them an easy answer. It's not clean cut and simple. You know, you might wish that I could give you a simple answer. This is an answer that doesn't fit on a tea towel from Bed Bath & Beyond, right? It's not pithy. It's not, it's not, you know, clever, right? It's messy. It's complicated. But it's the answers I've got. Why do bad things happen? Sometimes because we do bad things. Sometimes because we live in an unjust system. Sometimes because the world's alive in a violent way and we live with bodies that are alive in a violent and broken way, and sometimes because there's a cosmic force at work that's trying to undo creation. It doesn't fit on a tea towel, right? But I believe it's true. I believe that's why bad things happen. And so if that's what I believe, and if I don't believe that God's the cause of suffering and pain, and I don't believe that God chooses some people and doesn't choose others, and I believe that why bad things happen is more complicated and messy than I wish it was. Then what in the world is Paul saying, right? How do I understand Romans 8, 28, and 29? And Paul says, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is Paul talking about? So I don't think that Paul lives in la-la land, right? I think Paul is a realist. I think he lives in the real world. This is a man who would encounter pain and suffering in ways that most of us will never understand. I don't think he's trying to sell us a syrupy, sweet facade of faith. I, I think that he's making a much bolder claim in these verses. See, these two verses come within a larger conversation about human suffering in the chapter 8 of Romans. Paul is trying to talk about how we understand our suffering in the light of who Jesus is. He speaks of hoping for a future glory. That's his language. Hoping for a future glory that we can't fully see here on earth. There's something bigger and broader that, than we can understand that God is calling us and moving us toward. And so then when he offers this litany, I'm going to read it again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. See, what I hear Paul saying is I hear Paul pointing us back to the image of Jesus. 
As he says that God is constantly working to help conform us to the image of Jesus. Did you hear how hard God is working? God predestined, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. God's not working a 40-hour week in your life, right? God is hard at work conforming us to the image of Jesus, the one who is perfect. I hear Paul reminding me of a God who never abandons me who never abandons us, but is rather with us every single step of the way, especially in those seasons of suffering. And lastly, I I hear Paul challenging us to not simply be formed by the pain and suffering in our life. It is easy to allow pain and suffering to form us. It will do that all on its own. I have been formed by pain and suffering in my life, and I know that you have too. But Paul is calling us to go deeper. He's saying, Scott, don't just stop there. Don't stop with being formed by pain and suffering. What if you allowed God to form you in those seasons to be a greater working force, to be formed more in the image of Jesus so that when pain and suffering visit us, I can find my story in the story of Christ? Because Jesus, God, was not untouched by pain and suffering. It's one of the biggest reasons I'm a Christian, because God understands the reality of life. And here's the really good news, is that even though pain and suffering were a part of Jesus' story in a way greater than most of us will ever understand, in fact, greater than any of us can understand because all the sin of the world was on Jesus when he was on the cross, even though that was part of Jesus' story, it was not the end of Jesus' story. Even though it ended his earthly life. See, Jesus didn't get a happy ending in his earthly life. It didn't all work out. He died on a cross. And so grounded in reality, grounded in the real world, knowing that suffering is an all-too-present reality, Paul is reminding us of a Jesus who both suffered on a cross, but church historian in there, he also rose from a tomb. That's the story that Paul is asking us to find ourselves within. Because I want you to know that the promise of faith in Jesus is not an easy life, but a resurrected one. Now, you might wish I was able to stand up here and say, if you just have faith, things are going to work out. Or you might want me to stand up here and say, if you pray to God, God's going to answer those prayers, especially if you give in the offering plate. You might want me to say these kinds of things, but folks, you don't want me to say those kinds of things because the reality is it might not work out. There's going to be plenty in my life that doesn't work out the way that I want it to. And I need Jesus not to promise me an easy life, but a resurrected one. I need to know that even when I find myself on the cross, the empty tomb is coming. Even if my life here on earth is completely undone, if the cosmic evil at work in my life completely breaks me here on this earth, that that's not the end of my story. There is something greater, something more powerful, something more righteous, something more, as Paul would say, glorious coming. I don't know about you, but I don't want a faith that tries to brush aside my pain. I don't want to be expected to smile every time I walk into a church. I want a faith that engages my pain and helps me find purpose and resurrection in cemeteries. Is anybody in a cemetery this morning? I've lived long enough to know that bad things happen, and I don't always know why, my friends. I wish I did. And I've lived long enough to know that I can't have an easy life no matter how nice that might sound. But I have walked with Jesus long enough to know that I want a resurrected life and that God's love 
will be the final word in my story. So friends, let's not find hope in easy answers. Let's find hope in the resurrected Christ. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day, and we give you thanks for difficult answers. We give you thanks for a scripture that disagrees with itself, for the faithful conversation we see within that library. God, we give you thanks for the testimony of your servant Paul, who reminds us that even though we'll encounter a lot of pain and a lot of suffering in this earthly life, for a myriad of reasons, that none of them will be our final undoing. None of them will break us for good. None of them will be the end of our story because our story is rooted in you. And you sent us your son. The son who you sent to be the way, the truth, and the life for us, your people. And when your son was kneeling by an olive tree in the Garden of Gethsemane and his eyes were fixed on you and, and he said, Father, if there's any easier way, please, please make this easier. And God, I don't believe that you wanted your son to die a violent and painful death, but you wanted him to be available to us. And so that's what you called Jesus to do call Jesus to be available to us, to embrace us even if in our embrace we would place him on a cross. Because God, maybe you knew that we needed to see that crosses aren't the final word. Maybe you knew that we needed to see that off that cross, Jesus would enter a tomb and walk out three days later. Maybe you knew that we needed to see what the resurrected life could look like. So God, as we go home, as we prepare ourselves to offer ourselves both in worship and in our lives this week, as we get back to being husbands and wives and employees and managers and parents and grandparents and children, aunts and uncles, nieces and nephews, God, would you, would you help us to live more fully in that resurrected life? to know that you are with us through every season that you never abandon and that you will have the final word all this we pray in the resurrected name of your son Jesus the Christ and we say amen